0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by March of Dimes, leading the fight for the health of all moms and babies.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
2: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Libby Casey, politics and accountability anchor at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us for this two-part series on maternal and infant health. I'm delighted to welcome my first guest today, returning to Washington Post Live, Christy Turlington-Verns. Christy, welcome back and thank you for joining us this morning.
3: Thank you so much. It's great to be with you.
2: Let's start with some breaking news. Uh, Yesterday, the House passed the first bill of what's known as the Momnibus Act. It's a collection of bills addressing black maternal health. Um, Now, this first bill can go to the president for his signature and become law. You've been advocating for this to happen. Let's talk about this first bill, the Protecting Moms Who Served Act, what that does, and what this victory means.
3: Uh, Yes, we're very excited here to see that news last night come through. Uh, We've been supporting uh, the representative Underwood for um, several months now and really uh, behind all that's included in this MomNibus. The Protecting Moms Who Serve Act will codify and strengthen the Department of Veterans Affairs Maternity Care Coordination programs to ensure veterans receive the high quality maternal health care and support that they've earned. And additionally, the bill would commission the first ever comprehensive study of the scope of America's maternal health crisis among veterans with a particular focus on racial and ethnic disparities and maternal health outcomes. So um, this would be a a great step in the right direction, and there's a lot more.
2: Let's talk about the broader Momnibus uh, legislation and, and what you'd like to see. How optimistic are you that the rest of these bills can move through the House and Senate, and how does the Build Back Better? Uh, legislation that Democrats are trying to hammer out and the president would like to pass, how does that come into play for moms
3: and, and maternal health? I mean, just seeing the momentum over the last few years has been pretty exciting um, to see so many bills included. I mean, there are more are about... I believe included, 9 to 12 bills in the Momnibus. And in those collection of bills, there are um, efforts to strengthen perinatal workforce representation in the the workforce. Um, There's an emphasis on culturally concordant care. Um, There would be an effort to establish respectful maternity care compliance offices for accountability, which is also a critical piece of this work. Um, And also recommendations to invest in Black and Indigenous-led community-based organizations, which are largely the organizations that Every Mother Counts is supporting across the United States. Um, It also recommends critical investments in social determinants of health. We understand that the root causes of these maternal health outcomes are very much connected to um, housing, uh, food insecurity, um, and so many other factors that really impact a family and a mother's um, ability to have a healthy pregnancy and life. Um, and then also there is um, there are some efforts to also address climate change within those bills. So comprehensively packaged, um, we love the name. Uh, there are so many bills at this point that it's actually hard to keep track of them. Um, but I think with this package, um, And with this step in the right direction uh, and the Build Back um, Better Act, which we've also been really encouraging our community to um, support and to be aware of, uh, it it really can make a huge difference for mothers and families and birthing people around around the country.
2: Yes. When you were last with us on Post Live, it was July of 2020. And our other guest that day was Congresswoman Underwood, who you mentioned as a sponsor of this legislation, along with Congresswoman Alma Adams. They created this Black Maternal Health Congress, uh, Black Maternal Health Caucus in Congress. How revolutionary is that? I mean, it. it, it Congresswoman Underwood talked about how little had been being done, um, frankly, to like a shocking degree, in Washington, on the
3: issue of having
2: healthy mothers.
3: Yeah, I think the message really in the last few years is that women of color don't—they can't wait. Um, they are disproportionately impacted by the outcomes of maternal mortality and morbidity. Um, and to have someone in a position, in a leadership position like Representative Underwood, who is a nurse, um, who is the youngest elected, I think, uh, member of Congress ever. Um, to have her passion and her leadership, it, you you just really um, you can't uh, you can't like sort of imagine a better leader um, than than Lauren Underwood. Um, it's true, this this work has been there for some time. There have been conversations around um, implicit bias and race uh, racism in our medical institutions. And yet, until there was the formation of this caucus um, and the leadership of both Representative Underwood and um, Adams, I don't think we would have had as much momentum or as much energy around these bills. Um, and so, you know, as a partner organization to those efforts, we are just so so proud of this work and to be associated with it and in line with it, and so excited and po- and hopeful about um, what can what can be possible.
2: Yeah, Congresswoman Underwood is the youngest Black woman to ever serve in Congress so far. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to that appearance um, when you were last with us in Post Live in July twenty twenty. You know, I learned a lot from it, Christie. Um, As you talked about maternal health, it was the early months of the pandemic. It's almost hard to put ourselves back in that mindset of July 2020. But I, I, I wanna talk with you about that moment because the year before the pandemic was the safest year in history
3: to give birth. So tell us what had been going right. I think, you know, in the last decade that we've been working on this issue, I think it has been incremental progress in terms of the awareness globally as well as um, here in the United States. I think while we were seeing uh, the United States continue to go in the reverse direction of many um, under resourced countries around the world in the global south, um, I think. Just that awareness uh, was really starting to build. We were seeing maternal mortality um, in on the front pages of our papers. We were hearing stories and testimonies through many series, as well as through individuals that had high um, visibility profiles, such as Serena Williams. And all of that collectively was making a difference. I think in 2019, um, what we were seeing really was this 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 moment in time where um, so much was possible. We're coming into a new administration. Uh, there was leadership and um, uh, amongst many candidates uh, running for president. Uh, there were a lot of these bills introduced by some of those candidates. And I think, you know, there really was this sort of moment that uh, that we all wish for when we're advocating for an issue or a cause. And then of course the pandemic hit. And so when we last spoke, um, we were still trying to get our bearings. I think there was, this just real clamor for information, Um, a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, and where you're already dealing with many populations who are fearful of our institutions and um, maybe don't have the same access to um, quality care and respectful care. uh, I think we just saw this movement even further away from where we were starting to gain this momentum towards. And so um, that's really been a huge focus of ours over the past year and a half um, is to ensure a continuum of care for all Um, and of course with time and with more knowledge and with research and data, um, I think we're a lot more informed as a, as a society now. I mean, we know that the vaccine is available and we know it's safe for pregnant women. Um, we know that it is recommended uh, and there are far less risks associated with the vaccine than there is around be- being um, exposed to COVID while pregnant. Um, and so just that information alone I think um, has us a world away from where we were when we last spoke.
2: Let's talk about um, more some of the things that have gone wrong during this pandemic and how there's really been this backslide for maternal health, um, for uh, new mothers, for newborns. Um, You actually wrote an op-ed piece in our newspaper back in May, and the statistics you cited were staggering. Stillbirths rising sharply, uh, the amount of medical complications we're seeing around the globe. Talk to us, Christy, about what the pandemic has meant for global maternal health.
3: Uh, we will. It'll take us some time to get some of that data back. Unfortunately, there's been a bit of a time lapse. Um, in some of the countries where we have grantee partners, there's just no transparency whatsoever about the actual um, scope of of the pandemic. Um, I had just returned from India. Uh, right before lockdown and to be following um, our partners and the way that that information was coming and just the sheer numbers in the population and the denseness um, around the population in so many of the cities um, just having been there I, I think it felt particularly close um, I think the the partners have really focused on those um, on those areas of extreme need right like food insecurity, as I mentioned, housing, it went back to real basics, like um, when the vaccine or when uh, PPE weren't available, um, where, what could we really do in those moments? And so really, it went down to the very basics. Um, I would say, you know, there were some countries such as Guatemala, where we have partners where our partners there were able to get vaccinated quite quickly being part of the health workforce. Um, but very different across Tanzania, for example, or um, in Bangladesh. And so we've been just very, very deeply connected to our partners as we always try to be, um, to get that information from the front lines um, and then do our best as partners to support what they need in the moment. Um, And that really has been quite a range. I mean, even here in the States, in New York, um, our partners have been working on, you know, providing diapers and and food for their infants and, and, you know, very, very basic care. Uh, which is all related, honestly, to this issue. How is Every
2: Mother Counts seeing the pandemic creating a more unstable situation for pregnant people of color?
3: Well, like before the pandemic, um, people of color have been disproportionately impacted by uh, maternal mortality. Um, And, you know, this has been something that has been spoken about, but I would say that the pandemic really raised to the surface just how um, how extreme these health disparities actually are. Uh, there's a lot of efforts and conversation around um, implicit bias training. Uh, we've been working closely with uh, some institutions on um, companion pieces of uh, film content to help educate um, residents uh, and, and healthcare providers around those issues. Um, but I would say that's sort of the most exciting thing about this moment, is the fact that the veil has been lifted. Um, There should be no confusion around who is most impacted and who needs most attention and care, um, which is why uh, these communities are, are the focus of our work, but also, I would say, most of the partners that we are working alongside in this work um, on. So women of color, um, indigenous women are right behind um, black women in terms of, of their risk for complications and so I'm really supporting those community-based leaders um, and, and providers to make sure that they can continue to ensure um, consistent uh, and continuous care throughout all times. Um, we were able to work closely with partner organizations like Ancient Song Dula, service um uh, which is run by chanel Porsche albert whom i know you're going to be speaking to or will be up next and also um, village birth international on a uh, platform called just birth space which has been one effort um to help women navigate the system during this time um, to make sure that they have access to um, lactation support and um, doula support and uh, all of the things that um, when you are not able to reach a provider or um, have access to information and care are so essential during this time. We really don't want women and birthing people to fall through the cracks. Um, not now um, and not ever. And so putting in the work to create the foundations that will be this time um, the uh, quality resources for all.
2: Chris, you talk to us about the importance of health uh, leading up to birth, during birth, but then also the importance of caring for someone who's given birth afterwards. Of course, so much of our focus is on the infant and making sure the infant is thriving. But what about the mother?
3: You know, it's, um, it goes without saying, but you can't have one without the other in terms of um, healthy outcomes. And so uh, really trying to make sure that mothers are at the center, birthing people are at the center of their care is is really a focus. Um, I think, uh, you know, ideally you would have, you would enter the stage of your life, which is such an important and and huge responsibility um, in optimal health. And yet a lot of um, women and and birthing people aren't aware that they're pregnant until um, a ways in. And so um, making sure that when they are aware of their pregnancy that they have access to high quality care, um, the highest attainable quality care um, possible is really important through the pregnancy and then through delivery and then the postpartum. Um, Another part of the Momity Bus um, efforts in Build Back Better and all of the things we've been talking about to ensure um, great outcomes and, and, and an opportunity for women to thrive, not only survive childbirth, has been to extend Medicaid, coverage um, into the first year. Um, Traditionally, it's very short, a short period of time after you deliver a baby um, that you have that coverage um, or that you see a provider. And so um, extending that coverage would make a huge, huge difference in terms of identifying um, all kinds of things. Um, I think a third of the maternal mortality cases are happening in postpartum in the postpartum period so it's a critical time to ensure um, you know access to high quality care and so um, yes ideally we are planning and we are, are prepared and we are in our best health um, but realistically we know that half of pregnancies are unplanned um, in the United States and around the world and so um, making sure that as soon as we are aware of, um, of that status to make sure that um, we have access to the best quality care possible and all the way through
2: yeah, and as you point out afterwards, at a time when, um, as you've, I've heard you say before, moms are often so focused on caring for everyone else. And so there has to be uh, an effort, a communal effort, a medical effort to care for the mom as well. You know, not only is the U.S. home to one of the highest maternal mortality rates, but the maternal morbidity rate is among the highest of any industrialized nation. Christy, why is the U.S. topping the charts on, on these terrible lists?
3: Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> there's no real excuse for it. Um, I, I think there's a there's an expression that we use um, in this um, in this work which is too little too late and too much too soon. Um, I think we have a very medicalized health system, which um, if you are not um, uh, if you are welcomed into that system, and I would say most uh, deliveries actually do happen in the hospital. I think one in four hospital stays is connected to maternity care. Um, you may have um, um, more chance to have a medical intervention, which is not always the best choice for um, for the mom or baby, and so. Um you know, I think some of the statistics that are coming out or that I've seen in the time that I've been advocating for this work, um, which is I think shocking to most people, is that um, over-medicalization is contributing seriously to these factors. Um, when we have uh, a rise in chronic health conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, um, and obesity, um, those chronic health conditions may set you up for a more medicalized um, birth experience. And when that happens, it can that can ultimately set you up for, um, for uh, problems down the line I think that the you know maternal mortality is clearly um, a horrible uh, event to um, have experienced by family members by the care providers who are working on those cases um, and yet the morbidities that are associated which are less talked about which are I think more um, more widely experienced are the ones that I think we have the most chance to really uh, make a difference around I think the experience of a woman's health care and how she feels welcome, safe, um, supported and respected um, can make a huge difference in those outcomes. Um, I would hear the statistic early on that for every maternal death, there were 20 to 30 cases of morbidity. I think that's up to 100. Um, and so you can only imagine that most of the women that were walking around every day have had some kind of um, postpartum experience or experience in childbirth that they are still struggling with today. Um, we can do better we should do better. Um, this is you know, something that we, we know how to do better. And so um, we're really trying to make sure more people are aware and can join us in this movement to, um, to prevent those outcomes.
2: As you pointed out a little while ago, uh, maternal health is interconnected with infant health. What are you seeing as some of the less expensive but most impactful factors that could drive better incomes for healthy infants?
3: Well, I think, um, I mean, I think that consistent care throughout pregnancy um, will help to ensure those better outcomes for infant and mother Um, we would see less infants in the NICU Um, I mean in this country we have an issue of um, hospital closures and maternity ward closures um, birthing center uh, birthing centers not being as accessible as they should be for our for all as an option Um, and with that the expense of NICU um, utilization Uh, that should not be the goal it should not be the norm Um, and too often that is the case and it's incredibly expensive so what what we know now through evidence around doula support for example um, is that women will have those better outcomes are less likely to go into preterm birth and less likely to need um, that care for their their newborns and, and infants um, postpartum um, i think the more that we can do to prevent these outcomes is the right approach i think we sometimes have a system here in the united states of treatment um and and like what we do after as opposed to ensuring the best possible outcomes throughout and the best health and and you know optimal wellness um, in our livelihoods um, I think I think that's the emphasis that needs to happen um, and so doula care being one of those things that we're advocating for um, we're advocating for um, Medicaid reimbursement of that kind of care um, there is so much evidence out there and so just really helping to educate the public that that is an option um, doula is often can work in any uh, medical setting, whether it's a birth center or a hospital or a home. Um, and um, oftentimes, you know, especially for our community based folks, um, you can find a, a doula who looks like you, that comes from the community. And we know that that also makes a difference in um, the experience of a birthing person.
2: We will talk more about doulas in a few moments with our next guest. Um, Christy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Christy Turlington Burns, thank you.
3: Thank you so much.
2: And thank you for joining this conversation. I will be back in a few moments with my next guests, Carrie Sutton and Chanel Portia Albert. Stay with us.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning, I am Jade Roper-Tolbert, and most importantly, a mom of three sweet kids. I also host a podcast with my best friend called Mommies Tell All. I believe that sharing our stories of the highs and lows of motherhood can help change the way we approach maternal and infant health. Joining me today is Stacey D. Stewart, the president and CEO at March of Dimes, the leading nonprofit fighting for the health of all moms and
4: babies. Stacy, good morning. Good morning, Jade, great to see you.
0: You too. Stacey, every year, March of Dimes releases their annual report card, which showcases the state of maternal and infant health in our country. What are we learning in this year's report?
4: Well, thanks so much. And you're right. The March of Dimes is the leading organization fighting for the health of all moms and babies. And every year for the past many years, we've issued a report card that initially looked at just the issue of premature birth and assigned a grade to the country and to various states around premature birth. Today, though, what we understand is that to have a healthy baby, you have to have a healthy mother. And so what we've included in this report card this year are more indicators around maternal health as well as premature birth and infant health. And um, today what we see in the report card is that we've seen a slight decline in premature birth from 10.2 to 10.1% overall in the country. But what's very concerning is that 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 decline was not experienced across all parts of the the country. In fact, for African-American women and for um, American Indian and Alaska Native women, the rates of premature birth actually increased, which means we had widening disparities and really a growing maternal and infant health crisis in this country for especially women of color.
0: Do you know why the preterm birth rate dropped?
4: Well, what we know is that it it dropped for certain groups of women, for white women, for Asian women, for some Hispanic women, even though for Hispanic women for many, many years prior to this year, we had seen an increase in preterm birth rates. Um, And it's not exactly clear why we even saw any decline at all. We saw 33 states actually have an improvement in their preterm birth rates, while 13 states actually saw a a worsening in their preterm birth rates. What we have to do is we have to get more information about how the pandemic actually impacted preterm birth. But unfortunately, what we know is for many black and brown women, um, their health outcomes actually declined for maternal health as well as for infant health. And that's a particular concern to us with the March of Dimes.
0: In your report, um, why didn't preterm birth rates improve for certain communities of color?
4: Well, the issue of preterm birth is actually pretty complicated. Again, premature birth are babies that are born before 37 weeks of pregnancy. Premature birth and the consequences of premature birth are some of the leading causes of death for children between the ages of zero and five. And it affects almost 400,000 babies in this country born every year. One out of 10 babies is born prematurely. We don't know all the causes of premature birth. We have five uh, research centers, premature birth research centers in this country, one in the UK, just to look at the and try to get a better understanding of premature birth. We do know that there's some risk factors that actually increase the risk of premature birth for some uh, some, uh, women and babies in this country, especially women of color who may be experiencing some of the effects of racism and discrimination, which we know can have an impact on their health and can also uh, uh, cause poor birth outcomes for them as well.
0: Those are alarming figures, Stacey. Did the COVID-19 pandemic impact maternal and infant health?
4: Well, for pregnant women that contracted COVID-19, it had a significant impact on their health. Um, If a pregnant woman contracted COVID-19 and was unvaccinated, she was at a a significantly increased risk of severe illness and even death, hospitalization. Um, That's one of the reasons why we've been encouraging so many pregnant women based on CDC's guidance, to get vaccinated to protect them and their babies. But we don't know the full impact of the pandemic on women. We don't know, for example, how um, isolation and staying at home could have impacted their pregnancy. We don't know the full extent of it. We do know that many pregnant women experienced more severe mental health challenges during the pandemic that may have uh, affected their health and their baby's health a lot of the research that we're doing at the March Dimes is to better understand the full effects of the pandemic on maternal and infant health. But we do know that COVID-19 can be a very, very devastating uh, experience for many pregnant women. And it's why we've been encouraging so many pregnant women to get vaccinated and to stay safe during the pandemic to protect them and their babies.
0: Yeah. Uh, What are you doing at March of Dimes to combat this crisis?
4: Well, this maternal and infant health crisis was one that we were facing even before the pandemic. Uh, Just to be clear, the U.S. has considered the most dangerous developed nation in the world in which to give birth. That was true before the pandemic, and we don't think, it. obviously, those issues have improved during the pandemic. They've most certainly almost been made worse, even though we don't see that full effect in this year's um, report card with the premature birth rate. But one of the things that we're doing is obviously making sure that women have access to good information. We're focusing on policy change to actually improve the maternal and infant health crisis. And we're doing research to better understand how we can improve maternal and infant health overall.
0: Stacey, you and Marcia Dimes are working so hard every day. Um, What can we do to help you?
4: One of the best things that we can ask anyone to do is to get involved with us to help move forward on policy change. There are a package of bills making, making their way through Congress right now called Momnibus, which is a comprehensive approach to addressing policy change to, to really improve maternal and infant health. We would want everyone to get involved in that by signing up for our blanket change campaign at marchofdimes.org. Making your voices heard to become an advocate for maternal and infant health is one of the best ways that all of us can make sure that every single mom and baby, irrespective of race, ethnicity, where she lives, income level, that every single mom and baby can be healthy in this country. And certainly we have a lot of work to do and we need everyone's help. So get more information at marchofdimes.org.
0: Thank you so much, Stacy. I know I'm going to sign up today. Um, my firstborn was born prematurely and I also had a pandemic baby. So I have a heart for these mothers out there. And now back to Washington Post Live.
2: Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Libby Casey, Politics and Accountability Anchor at the Washington Post. My next guests on the program are Dr. Carrie Sutton from the Association of American Medical Colleges and Chanel Portia Albert, Doula, and founder of Ancient Song Doula Services. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Dr. Sutton, let's start with you. You're the director of an organization that leads efforts to increase health equity research. Talk to us about some of the work being done on these issues of maternal and infant health. So yes, um, I am
5: currently director of research at the AAMC Center for Health Justice. And within the center, we are really looking at the uh, different levers to change and increase health equity among populations. And it's for the whole entire nation. Um, And one of the things that we're looking at is really being intentional in the efforts that we're doing um, and working with multi-sector collaborators to ensure uh, maternal health equity and infant health equity. So just one example would be really looking at the data and infrastructure that is needed to change Um, policy and and also to catalyze action uh, for maternal health equity. So looking at your education data that you may need, working with transportation and looking at that data, also looking within the criminal justice system and that data, and how can we all partner together in order to ensure change and also minimize these maternal health inequities.
2: So Dr. Sutton, I understand that you were joining us during your own maternity leave. (laughs)
5: Yes. I just had a a baby three and a half weeks ago. And so this conversation is near and dear that we're going to talk about doulas because my doula, a postpartum doula is actually upstairs with the little one at this moment. So I have a lot to talk about.
2: Well, congratulations and thank you so much for taking time uh, with us. Um, what a privilege for us. So tell us more about your experience uh, with doula support and, and how that helped you and how you see that translating to other people in the delivery room or you know, at home, even wherever they choose to give birth.
5: So one of the things that I really have noticed just with my own experience with my doula is that um, this maternal health crisis is definitely an intersectional problem. It's an intersectional kind of issue. Um, You would think we hear all the time this disparities uh, amongst women of color and really looking at those disparities to know that um, these disparities uh, persist regardless of income and education. Um, So being a person in maternal health space, it was not even a second thought for me to have a doula even though I am in this research space. Um, And so my experience with my particular doula was that she uh, provided support and care for my husband and also for myself, and also is providing that support and care for us now, um, even though I've experienced a couple of postpartum challenges. Um, I will credit to say that my doula was part of that life-saving team for me. And and that's hard to say uh, for a person that has a PhD and is actually in this space, um, these disparities in this crisis does not discriminate based on your socio-democratic status.
2: Can you tell us more about that, Dr. Sutton? Chanel, I I want to get to you in just a moment, but Dr. Sutton, can you tell us more about just, you know, studying this, researching it, being an advocate in it, or um, uh, someone who uh, learns about this space is different than experiencing it yourself?
5: Right. it's in that labor and delivery space where you need the advocate. Uh, You need the person to be that conduit for communication for you and your, your support person and the medical team. Um, And so, actually experiencing what I had research of not necessarily being heard at times about pain, uh, not necessarily being listened to, and even after in this postpartum phase, going through a couple of challenges and not necessarily being heard, having that advocate and doula Uh, by my side has definitely empowered me to a point uh, that I didn't even know that I needed uh, to help with the care. Uh, So it's actually you're living and breathing uh, the research where doulas, um, the evidence shows um, from many studies that doulas have many benefits to women of color and all women across the US, but also thinking about uh, the reduction of cesarean rates for those who have doulas, uh, the, the increase of birth weights for those individuals that do have doula care, and also um, the, the decrease, in, um, under, decrease in the postpartum uh, depression and anxiety symptoms um, for those who do have the doula uh, support after
2: uh, labor and delivery. Mm -hmm. Chanel, can you reflect a little bit on Dr. Sutton's experience, you know, just what it takes to be listened to and be heard and be really given the respect and space through the delivery process that a, a person going through labor needs?
1: I mean, ideally, what someone needs is for their humanity to be seen, right, Um, for that to be conveyed and to be centered and and to be forefront in the care that they're receiving. To understand that um, they're a full human being who is coming forward with a complex identity, and it's just not about that particular episode of care that is happening to them. And so as they're going through their birthing process, process. there's a multitude of things that are happening emotionally, physically, um, one could even say spiritually that are affecting how someone is able to be present and within their body during their experience. And so what we really need is providers who are taking a really culturally humble approach to care. What does it mean to meet people where they are, not where we expect them to be, and to understand that they come with a complex history um, that is centered in understanding, you know, uh, intergenerational trauma, understanding the experiences of um, of Black people within the context of America, within the U.S. healthcare system, and the ways in which that has impacted how we choose to center ourselves within our, our healthcare. Um, all of that weighs in on you know how someone is able to to show up, but also, you know, how they're also treated. You know, people want to just individ- birthing people just want to be um, know want to know that someone genuinely cares about them. And that's all individuals. We all want to want to feel like someone has their our best interests at heart, but also is listening and centering our bodily autonomy. Um, in a way that feels good to us, um, not in a way that um, is positioned for the benefit of the provider and not for the benefit of the birthing person.
2: Chanel, as you talk about this need for a doula to have the understanding of reproductive rights, but also birth justice and the humanity of the person giving birth, how do you teach that to doulas?
1: Um It starts out with, you know, our first initial meeting always goes with, you know, you can't center other people until you center yourself first, right? And so in understanding what does it mean for me to feel like my voice is being heard? What does it mean for me to feel like um, I'm being listened to, to to feel like um, someone genuinely cares about my own well being, right? And the only way that you're able to really convey that to other people is to feel that within yourself first, um, but then also to ask the underlying question, which is, what does support feel like? You know, I think we oftentimes um, come in with these assumptions, um, you know, based on what we've read, what we've seen, what we, we what we have experienced as individuals. But as individuals, understanding that everything that has happened to us since we have physically come out of someone impacts how we're able to navigate in the world, right? How we show up as our full selves. And so starting out with that framework of like, what is support? What does support look like? What does it feel like? You know, Does it have a smell? Does it have a way that it is conveyed? And it's gonna look different for different people. And so that's why it's really essential for us to meet people where they are, not where we expect them to be. And in drafting out a care plan that is individualized, that's really understanding the cultural dynamics of how someone shows up, um, their religious beliefs, um, their gender, Uh, you know, are they a first-time parent, second-time parent, you know, all of these things make a difference in how someone is able to, um, able to feel, you know, centered and whole, you know, a lot of times we come in contact with individuals who have experienced previous sexual trauma or DV, or maybe they are, you know, incarcerated, you know, that doesn't separate you or make you, Um, any less of a human being or any less of a parent, right? It just means that you have this situation that is going and that doesn't dictate everything that should happen to you. Um, And so we really want, we really start that out as the core of like, you know, understanding that again, we're, we're all having these different human experiences. And so what does it mean for us to center that in a way that really centers their, their basic human rights to bodily autonomy, to inform decision-making, uh, to be able to parent and center themselves in a way that is affirming.
2: Dr. Sutton, can you expand for us on what inequities exist for pregnant people and, and why greater equity would curb the statistics for maternal mortality here in this country?
5: you so... Currently, um, about 700 women die from complications from pregnancy or childbirth in the US um, on a year to year basis. And so we know that black women and American Indian Alaskan Native women are two to three times more likely to die uh, due to childbirth or pregnancy uh, complications. Um, As I stated earlier, these particular racial and ethnic disparities persist regardless of income and education levels. Um, so what we're looking at is a true maternal health crisis because the numbers have not improved over 60 years. Um, and so what we're looking at is thinking of innovative models and innovative ways in which we can improve the health equity and also the justice uh, for these particular populations, whether that be uh, making sure that there are payment and, re- and reimbursement policies in place so that more women and birthing persons have access to doulas. Because to be honest, having a doula is expensive if you're not able to afford it. Uh, depending on training in areas, and I can defer to Chanel for this, um, <laughs> i, I- it's between 500 to 3,500 dollars at sometimes to pay for a doula, um, and not every person has that available funds. And private insurers do not necessarily cover doulas for every place, so it's it's an access issue. Ensuring that there are payment models in for in place for people to be able to be able to afford, um, and also thinking about informing and educating and working with community-based organizations uh, to let mothers and birthing persons know about the benefits of having a doula. That's kind of where we are. Um, Just to sum it up, we really think that this work, this health equity work in maternal health is grounded in community wisdom and voice. And we cannot make this change unless we really work and partner with the community members, with our mothers, with our birthing persons and come together collaboratively for solutions uh, for this maternal health crisis.
2: Mm. To that point, I had a doula with me at the hospital when I had my two children, one at the lead up to the birth, the other for the whole process, but it was something I had to pay for out of pocket. I had to totally arrange for it myself. And fortunately, the hospital was open to having a doula, Um, but Chanel, you know, is there still resistance? Are you still encountering resistance in that integrated model of trying to have, you know, sort of multiple uh, people represent what the mother might need in that birth moment? (laughs) I mean, yeah, there's always, you know,
1: some resistance um, in different pockets. Um, you know, everyone has not come to the table and it's like, okay, this is this is beneficial, this is going to work, right? And I think that a lot of the hesitancy comes in with a lack of education around what the real true role of a doula is um, and being able to center birth outcomes. So when we look at, you know, the the birthing person, and, you know, most providers are looking at, you know, a healthy parent and a healthy child, you know, but the birthing person is also looking at, well, what was my outcome like? You know, what, how did I feel emotionally? Did I feel like my bodily autonomy was centered? Did I feel like my voice was heard? That also weighs and plays a huge role in how someone experiences the postpartum period. Um, you know, so when we talk about postpartum complications, you know, it's also the mental health aspect of it. And, you know, as Dr. Sutton mentioned, um, previously, you know, having her own doula has allowed her to be able to navigate the postpartum period in a way that has centered her and her family in an affirming way, right? Allows for the ease and the transition into parenthood to be um, to be easier. When we think about community care frameworks, this is not something that is new. Um, it's just something that is more new to the healthcare institution. But there have always traditionally been ways in which um you know, in various different cultures where individuals when there was an episode of someone was pregnant, you had someone who was preparing that individual, who was supporting them through that process, you know, who was there for aftercare. Um, and so it's really important for us to kind of recapture that and those community care frameworks is what's is, doing that But it's doing it from an intersectional perspective. It's understanding how the social determinants of health also impact how someone is able to show up within their care. And, you know, as mentioned previously, um, the cost of care. You know, right now, um, there are seven states that have passed uh, doula Medicaid reimbursement um, legislation. There are 13 states who have legislation in place, um, but we need a lot more. And we need it to be done in such a way where it centers the birthing person, but also the doula who's providing services, looking at the cost of living, looking at the fact that when we're talking about community-based doulas, we're talking about people who are living and working in those same um, communities, who also they themselves may be low income, who they themselves may be going through um, the different intersections of how they're able to show up for other people. Maybe there's a lack of transportation, you know, there may be food insecurity. And so while you as a doula are trying to get food for someone and and address a food insecurity issue, um, yourself um, for that individual that you're supporting, they too may be experiencing them this themselves because they live in that community too. And so we really have to look at it from this justice perspective of what does it mean to lift up an entire community? What does it mean for us to really work in a collaborative care framework? I know that term, you know, that's always thrown around, where people are like, yes, you know, we're doing collaborative care, but in a genuine way, right? Where we have these models of care that are, are addressing the gaps such as midwifery care um, and, and, and establishing a network of support, lifting up education at the same time as we're looking at different pathways to be able to address um, care because it's not going to happen any one way.
2: Chanel, the New York City Mayor-elect Eric Adams said during his campaign that he wants to provide doulas to all first-time mothers in the city. Do you think this approach will be effective or do you think that it needs to be more targeted to women in specific areas or from specific demographics?
1: I mean, I definitely think that all individuals has, should have access to a doula should you want one through your reproductive life course. I think that that's important. But of course, I, I also think that it's it's you know really important to address those high needs areas and um, in, in in pockets where um, care is just not being distributed evenly, you know, um, you know and and how, um, the mayor chooses to do that, I hope, um, is really centered in, you know, a community-based approach where we are bringing in folks who are experiencing or who have experienced um, the adverse effects of what happens when someone doesn't listen. When we look at um, individuals like Amber Rose Isaac, when we look at Denise Williams, who recently... um, Lost her life, you know, during the postpartum period. She went to go seek out healthcare services um, at a hospital, and you know, three days later um, was found was pronounced dead. And her family still hasn't heard any answers as to the reason why. And so we really need to look at why are these things happening? Where's the level of accountability that's taking place? And what are folks doing to really center families in an equitable way, where where there's not just having conversations, but there's truth, there's reconciliation, there's movement towards really creating systems of change um, that are new and fresh. And we can't be afraid to um, work from a new perspective because what we have in place right now is not
5: working.
2: And you mentioned Amber Rose Isaac, that she she died in uh, 2020 in April of 2020. Uh, delivering her son after an emergency C-section in the Bronx. Um, before we go, Dr. Sutton, I just have to ask about how the pandemic is impacting issues surrounding maternal mortality and infant health. I know it's a big question, but do you have any key takeaways from us for us, Dr. Sutton?
5: The major key takeaway, since we're talking about doulas, is the 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 difference in the policies and rules of who gets to have a doula and what hospitals are allowing doulas and when, um, and also the different guardrails and red tape that you have to uh, break through in order to have your doula present and how long your doula will be present. Um, and so that is causing. Uh, definitely some inequities uh, for our uh, women of color who are not necessarily being able to have their doulas there. These are women that do have doulas and who have been working with them, uh, but then show up to the hospital and their doula is not allowed into the labor and delivery process, or you'll have to choose between having your doula or a family member. Um, and so this has been uh, is being examined now to show how uh, the pandemic and this difference in policy is. Is exacerbating some of the maternal health uh, inequities
2: that are experienced among women of color. Well, thank you so much to both of you. We have to leave it there. Chanel, Portia Albert, and Dr. Carrie Sutton, thank you for your time. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.